Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, with the two more mass shootings and the rise of racist rhetoric and racial bigotry, and often combined with nationalist, Christian nationalist rhetoric, I believe the time has come to say that there is no such thing as racist Christians. That is, I don't think that you can be both things. And that's my title this morning, Christian Racists? Question mark. And the answer, of course, no. White supremacist Christians, is there such a thing? No. American first Christians? No. MAGA Christians? No. Let's read from James 1.19 to 27. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So the gospel can be and has been misunderstood and the characteristic misunderstanding is dealt with James. That he's dealing with a situation I think very similar to that in American evangelicalism in Christian churches. And that is that ethics, the ethics of Christ are not joined to the faith of Christ so that the faith becomes an empty category. And we can use the name Jesus and it just means anything we want it to mean. It can be attached to any sort of ideology. And of course the error of the Lutheran reading, of maybe the Protestant reading, it imagines that Paul pits law against grace and works against faith and would presume to pit the Old Testament against the New. Luther, Calvin, evangelicalism pictures salvation as occurring apart from works. James says just the opposite. He says that if you don't visit orphans and widows, if you don't do what's right, if you do not bridle your tongue, if you do not practice your religion, your religion is worthless. It's meaningless. It's not Christianity. And so people confuse works of the law and doing good works. And as a result, there is a kind of disassociation, I think, in Christianity in this country with salvation and salvation then is pictured as just a kind of departure. 
I don't think we're wrong in imagining that being saved is being part of the church. But what it means to be saved and to be part of the church really is to practice this salvation. And this practice is what it means, you know, this is what James is describing, that we practice following Jesus. And so James is clearly addressing those who are part of the church, yet they are in danger of equating membership with salvation. And these people, maybe we ourselves, might imagine that, oh, well, the main thing is that we're orthodox, that we believe correctly. And we might hope that our particular orthodox expression of the faith, whatever it might be, will preserve us from complicity in evil. But orthodoxy is no protection, right? You can believe correctly. You can be orthodox in your understanding and evil in your practice and your religion is worthless. James says you believe that God is one. He says you do well, that's good, you should believe that. But understand the demons also believe that and they shudder. 2.19 is where he says that. A small dose of history indicates near universal collusion. And of course there are many exceptions. But universal collusion with slavery, with anti-Semitism, with various forms of political evil. No one owned more slaves, and this is statistically the case, than members of the Restoration Movement in the South. Membership in a particular church will not preserve from complicity in evil. And in fact, church history teaches us that membership in any particular church has sometimes been more of a guarantee that you will practice evil. Even James is having to warn one of the very first churches against denigrating the poor. And so there are several tests which the New Testament provides, which James provides, to judge true religion. How do you know if you're practicing true religion? You must be a doer of the word, James says. A religion that does not provide for widows, orphans, and the poor, it's not true religion. Period. In James' estimate. A religion which creates widows, orphans, and poor, which kills, excludes, and oppresses, is, by James' understanding, 119 to 27, defiled and impure religion. One who denigrates the impoverished and joins the oppressor is not a follower of Jesus. Period. The Christian loves his neighbor who is by definition, James is following his brother Jesus here, that by definition the poor and oppressed, those in need, are our neighbor. And in his various tests of true religion, James provides a singular, singular definitive marker for distinguishing Christianity from pure evil. We need such tests, right, today? James needed them then, and we need to be able to test today. And what is the test? The capacity to hear the oppressed and do something about it. The former slave, Frederick Douglass, who, as you know, Frederick Douglass becomes the U.S. ambassador. He was a slave. He's 
becomes a freedman, and then he becomes the ambassador to Haiti, and one of the strongest spokesmen for abolition. He said there was a difference so wide between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of this land that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. Clearly, by James' standard of measurement, hearing the oppressed, helping widows and orphans, a religion which could enslave one people and abuse and systematically make widows and orphans through tearing families apart does not meet James' criteria. And of course, as I'm describing this, we're thinking of people at our own border where this is literally taking place in the name of Christ. The white Southerners had no ear to hear the oppressed. Do we have ears to hear? James' promise is that God hears the oppressed. And on the other hand, those who do not, James equates with evil. He says that's the difference between who God is and what evil is. And what was absolutely clear to Frederick Douglass, who was a runaway slave, was a truth obscured by economics, national, and regional loyalty, and what amounted to a way of life, a culture. He says, this is Frederick Douglass, the slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land did not have the perspective to understand it was an abomination to the name of Christ. Isn't this the purest form of deceit to call evil good in the name of Christ? The conviction that the United States was a Christian nation was of course one factor in the rise of racial oppression as there seemed to be something like official religious sanction of white supremacy. The election of Donald Trump and evangelical support for Trump is a living proof that white supremacy is alive and well, not in spite of but because of evangelical Christians. Evangelicalism has been particularly prone to allowing the culture to shape the church in this country. And the privatized going to heaven when you die belief of many has given rise to a disembodied Christianity. And what I mean by that is a Christianity that people don't practice. To practice this faith means you challenge real world evil and this real world evil you cannot practice and you know to say that you can do the one you can practice evil and be saved is just an oxymoron is a faith that requires oppression and exclusion which explicitly tolerates and promotes white supremacy Christianity or is it misnamed isn't this as Douglas would have it the climax of misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, I'm quoting Douglas, the grossest of all libels, isn't this precisely the false religion which James warns 
should not be confused with authentic forms of the faith. This sort of religion makes distinctions. This is what James says. Make no distinctions among people. This religion says to the poor man, the foreigner, the person of color, well, you stand over there or you sit down by my footstool. James 2.3 says, if you do that, you're not the church. In dishonoring the poor man and favoring the rich, James explains you have dishonored Christ. James seems to know of only one form of wealth. It's ill-gotten gain obtained by oppressing the poor, the cry of which, he says, passes by the deaf ear of the oppressors and falls on the ear of God. If you cannot hear the oppressed, looking at James 5, 5, this marks you out as one who has, quote, fattened his heart in a day of slaughter. The religion which Douglas condemns is precisely the unjust religion James condemns, and both appear to parallel contemporary forms of the faith. And so Christian complicity in systemic evil, such as slavery, think here national socialism, white supremacy, bigotry, oppression of women, oppression of minorities, or simply the abuse of people due to a misshapen theology. You know, this abuse visit upon the powerless, children, women, people of color, foreigners, the worker, specifically James mentions, the worker denied his wages, is a clear sign of a religion that has gone deaf. That is one that does not hear the voice of the oppressed. The danger of evil and especially of an evil religion is that the voice of the oppressor will drown out the voice of the oppressed. And all of this in the name of Orthodox Christianity. Maybe part of our problem, Alexander Campbell's rationalistic approach to scripture had the tendency to simply focus on the rational form of the faith. He thought if we get the form of the church right, then we would get salvation right. And this caused Campbell to seldom ask about the poor and marginalized. He himself, by the way, was an owner of slaves, but uh, you have to immediately qualify that, and he released his slaves. His notion that the Christian age, the church, begins in Acts, meant that the ethics of Jesus and the embodied nature of Israel were not applicable to the church. And so some, I believe, in our churches concluded that they had succeeded in restoring the New Testament church and that salvation depended on belonging to this one true church. We've done it. We've restored it. Now come join our church. And if you don't join our church, then you're not part of the one true church. Having obscured the central themes of the biblical message, the white churches of Christ, at the time of the freedom movement in the 1960s, of Martin Luther King Jr. and civil rights activists, they were wholly unprepared to embrace their brothers and sisters of color who asked for nothing more than to be treated with respect as human beings. Indeed, they were wholly unprepared to discern in the civil rights movement, in the freedom movement, the faces of Christ, the face of Christ, the faces of the kingdom of God. 
And so the evil done in spite of the Christian faith, that is against the conscience, I believe it pales in comparison to the evil done on behalf of the faith, in good conscience. Christian complicity in systemic evil, such as slavery, national socialism, thinking here of Germany, white supremacy, bigotry, oppression, it is a clear sign of a religion gone deaf. And the danger is that far from being preserved from that evil, we create it. So that far from being preserved from being the devil, ourselves we are becoming the devil. And so the question is, if a Christianity which shuts out the voice of the victim, the harassed and the oppressed deserves the name. Isn't the instinct to silence the aggrieved? That's the very silence that put Christ on the cross. He was arrested at night. He was illegally tried. This is Frederick Douglass again. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. To paraphrase Douglas, we still have vile oppressors for ministers and women denigrators for religious professors. The man who wields the blood-clotted whip during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday, Douglas says, and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who has robbed me and my family of my earnings meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. James warns, however, that the enrichment of some at the expense of others creates the wealth that, this is James 5.3, that will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Is this not the same one of whom Jesus speaks, the one who loves the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and loves to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi? Is this a Christian or is this one of the Pharisees and hypocrites who make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within is full of extortion and excess. Do we have here one of the whited sepulchers, which appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness? Jesus seems to be targeting religion gone bad, and this religion is marked out by its excessive display, its arrogance, its extortion, Douglas concludes, dark and terrible as is this picture, I hold it to be strictly true of the overwhelming mass of professed Christians in America. They strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Could anything be more true of our churches? Interestingly, Douglas on his arrival in the British Isles, he said, I experienced an absence, a perfect absence of everything like that disgusting hate which we are pursued in America. Out of a sense of duty to his fellow Americans, African Americans, Douglas returned. He began to speak and write. He describes his extreme nervousness. He stands up in front of a white congregation and tells his story for the first time. And yet this voice of a former slave became key in recognizing the abomination of Christian slavery. 
Maybe when young black brothers and sisters find that comfort in our churches, the perfect absence of hate, can we claim to have heard the oppressed? Maybe when our brown brothers, maybe when our yellow brothers, maybe when people of color, people of different races, different nationalities, feel that perfect absence of hate. Only then can we have heard, claim to have heard the voice of the press. And so the resolution is a gospel of grace. The resolution is a gospel of love. This is James 3, 6 to 18. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and in action. In addition to the gospel of grace, the New Testament offers another vantage point from which we can resist, I believe, the sirens that dominate this culture. The gospel of the kingdom. Jesus went through Galilee, this is in Matthew 4.23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Matthew's phrase here, the gospel of the kingdom, offers an alternative introduction to a theme that resonates throughout the gospels, the kingdom of God. And if we inquire into, you know, what is this kingdom of God? It's easy to understand in virtually every instance, the kingdom of God appears. Guess what it is linked with? Aiding the poor hearing the oppressed, coming to the aid of those in prison, the maimed, the lame, the blind, all those who suffer at the hands of the world's elites will find comfort, will find healing, will find rest in the kingdom of God, and this is the kingdom that Jesus establishes and that we are to be. In other words, the kingdom of God is where the powerless are empowered, where the hungry are fed, where the sick are healed, where the poor are sustained, and where those who find themselves marginalized by the rulers of the world are able to find equality and justice. And so put another way, the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of grace. Grace is given to people, and we then are to be the channels of the grace of God. Grace, it tells us that just as God has said yes to us, in spite of our failures, we must say yes to others in spite of their failures. In the words of John, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And so the gospel message then has two components. God extends his radical self-giving love and grace to each of us. He's accepted us. He said yes to us in spite of our failures, of our brokenness, of our sins. And the second step, God's love requires that we extend his love and grace to others and say yes to them in spite of failures, brokenness, and sin. And so the first component, God's own love and grace, is to be the driving, enabling power behind the second component, the grace we extend to our neighbors. Apart from that extension of grace in the kingdom of God, we cannot claim to be Christian.
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.